The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org.
Do you have a, what, that is an, is that an Amanita mushroom on your Google page? All right, y'all, I am going to call the meeting to order. It's 7.04 and uh, this is the April 28th. 2022 Electronic Meeting of the Environmental Commission. This meeting is in accordance with executive orders from the governor in effect to social to affect social distancing and mitigate the spread of the COVID-19 virus. We intend to conduct this meeting similar to an in-person meeting. However, be, please be patient if there are technical issues, uh, if there are technical issues. Public comment will be via telephone only to speak during any of the public comment opportunities, which will be at the beginning and end of the meeting, please call 1-888-788-0099 and meeting, enter the meeting ID, which I'm gonna say is 989-2851-1637. I'm gonna say those both again, just to be sure. It's the phone number is 888-788-0099. The meeting ID is 989-2851-1637. Um, the information is also published on the agenda in the public notice session, section of the city website and on the broadcast of this meeting at CTN channel 16, at and channel 99, and online at www.a2gov.org slash watch, W-A-T-C-H-C-T-N. Uh, and with that introduction, I will ask Julie to read the land heritage statement. Certainly. Uh, I acknowledge that the land of the city and Ar of Ann Arbor occupies is the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe, including Odawa, Ojibwe, and Bodawadmi and Wyandotte peoples. I further acknowledge that our city stands like almost all property in the United States on lands obtained generally in unconscionable ways from indigenous peoples. The taking of this land was formalized by the Treaty of Detroit in 1807. Knowing where we live, work, study, and recreate does not change the past, but a thorough understanding of the ongoing consequences of this past can empower us in our work to create a future that supports human flourishing and justice for all individuals. Thank you, Julie. And now would you read the roll call, please? Uh, Commissioner Needham. People say things out loud, right? Because I can't see you. Yeah. So absent, okay. Uh, Commissioner Dish. Here. <clears throat> And Commissioner Graham. I'm here. And Council Member Commissioner Griswold. Here. Commissioner Callowart. Here. Uh, and I know Chair Brown is absent, correct? Correct. And Vice Chair Mitchell. Present in Ann Arbor. And Commissioner Vandenbroek. Here. Commissioner Oriol. I believe she will be absent. Got a message from her. Uh, Commissioner Zheng. 
Also absent. Commissioner Cape Randall. Here in Ann Arbor. Commissioner Marson. I'm here in Ann Arbor. And Commissioner Gruber. Here in Ann Arbor. And Commissioner Nedrich. And Commissioner Juno. Here in Ann Arbor. That's good. I have no idea if that's a quorum. <laughs> Going to assume it is. It is. Good. We need we, we need at least eight. Yep. Thank you very much. All right. Um, so now I would like to um, move to approve as for a uh, motion to approve the agenda. Move. Uh, Kathy Griswold and second by Chris Graham. Um, and I will now ask for a motion to approve our minutes from the March 24th meeting, I think it was. Shannon Gibrandall and a second by anybody? Commissioner Juno, thank you. Um, all right, so here we are. We are um, at a point for the public comment, which isn't on the agenda. That's, a, oh no, I'm sorry, we got the minutes, we got, yes, here we are, public comment. Um, for public comment, there I go, that's my script. Um, this is an opportunity for persons to speak for up to three minutes. Please call 1-888-788-0099 and enter the meeting ID of 989-2851-1637. Uh, this information is also displayed on the meeting agenda and video feed. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand one by one by using the last three digits of their phone number. In order to electronically raise your hand to indicate your desire to speak, please press star nine on your phone. You'll hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute any television or background noise so that we may hear you clearly. Please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments. Thank you. Uh, Julie, do we have any other comments? I do not see anybody having called in yet. Right. Okay, well, then um, I think that we should move on. And I'd love to hear um, you as the next presenter on the sustainable energy utility. Well, pleased to have you with us today. Absolutely. And What's that? Okay, so uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Julie Roth. I'm Senior Energy Analyst at the Office of Sustainability and Innovations. I was signed up to present the SVU to you this evening, and uh, Galen is on vacation, so I somehow got to do the whole thing, <laughs> which is, like I said, my first time doing this, so thank you for bearing with me. And um, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. All right, and we will there we go. Okay, can you see my slides? Yes. Yes. Excellent. Very good. Okay, so I'm really excited to be here this evening um, to uh, be able to present uh, the Ann Arbor sustainability, sustainable energy utility to you. I want to 
provide a brief overview of what an SCU is, how it could operate in Ann Arbor, and what our next steps are. And there will be time for questions when we're done, and I welcome them. So um, as a background, I know many of you know this, but for the public watching as well, um, Ann Arbor has set an ambitious goal of achieving zero climate pollution by the year 2030. To understand how to achieve that goal, it's important to understand where our climate pollution comes from. Locally, 40% of our community-wide pollution or greenhouse gas emissions come from building electricity use. And nearly two thirds come from building electricity use plus natural gas that we use to heat and cool our buildings. So that's two thirds of our emissions coming from our buildings, electricity and gas. Um, given this reality, we know that solutions to reducing local climate pollution necessitate finding pathways to clean our electricity grid and support the transition away from fossil gas that we use to heat and cool um, to clean electricity. This is a big task. Let's see. Ah, here we go. Sorry about that. Okay, so here is um, DTE's fuel mix right now um, in 2020. And you can see that we're still heavily reliant on coal with DTE. Um, we have some nuclear power and a bunch of gas. And an SEU, a potential SEU, um, if we are um, electrifying a good portion of our um, grid with solar could substantially change uh, that grid mix. So as we look for ways to improve the reliability and energy mix of our energy supply, it's important to understand the landscape in Michigan. Ann Arbor has what is known as a pre-foot act franchise, which means that DTE has the right in perpetuity to provide power to the city. Um, if you want to know more about the foot act, I know a lot about it and why we ended up this way, but this is where we are. We have a uh, in perpetuity um, contract with DTE, but um, foot act franchise franchises, which we are, are not exclusive. And the Michigan constitution does protect the right of cities and villages to create their own municipal utility. And this can be done in one of two ways. Either you can via a taking, which is a legal term, which is a condemnation and buyout of an incumbent utility and their, all their infrastructure, or via the creation of a supplemental utility. And to date, Every community that has started their own municipal utility within Michigan, with the last one being Zeeland, which was originally formed in 1902, did so by starting utility from scratch when service was not widespread like it is now. And you can imagine why. Standing up a full set of poles and wires to directly compete with current poles and wires owned by the incumbent utility is expensive. Um, as is buying out their infrastructure through condemnation, which means you acquire infrastructure that is often in poor condition, which is what we have now. Um, but what if we created a complementary community-owned energy utility 
that provides electricity from local solar and battery storage systems installed on homes and businesses in our community. <clears throat> what if that community-owned utility provided 100% clean, reliable, locally built, and affordable electricity built right here in our community? This utility would give residents a choice for where they procure their energy, a choice that we can't have today, we don't have today. And this parallel utility would not duplicate the traditional grid with all of its vulnerabilities, but instead of focusing on long distance, um, uh, long distance um, trend, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Transmission, thank you, to, uh, of power from distant power plants, this utility would focus on local generation here in our footprint, generating clean, reliable, and affordable power right now. So this is what the city of Ann Arbor is looking to do via the creation of a sustainable energy utility. As envisioned, an SEU would focus first on generating local clean energy, energy that would feed directly into our homes and our businesses and our places of worship and community centers, this clean energy would be paired with storage to help improve energy reliability and offered in conjunction with deep energy waste reduction programs that help our residents lower their energy cost and their energy usage, all while improving the comfort of their homes. The concept of an SEU is grounded in choice, providing Ann Arborites another way to procure a large portion of their energy, one that's coming from clean, local, reliable, and resilient sources. The SEU would enable a lot more people to get the benefit of solar by directly paying for installation on residential and business roofs, carports, and via ground mounted systems. Residents wouldn't be the owner of that solar system. The public or the SEU would own it. Residents would subscribe to purchase their energy at a rate that is based on costs and SEU operational needs from the system on their or their neighbor's roof. If all the residents' power needs are met, the excess generation from the solar system on their property flows into a battery system. This means that residents could still have power if the big traditional grid goes down. This is already possible today. Um, additionally, the SEU would not be limited by current utility restrictions that constrain the solar system sizes and the amount of solar allowed on the grid. For example, the 1% cap that we're getting very, very close to um, hitting. Instead, the SEU would seek to maximize solar installations, leveraging all viable sunny roof space. Over time, individual solar systems would be connected through a series of microgrids, not DTE's big grid. The SEU could also offer a series of robust energy waste reduction programs, helping people lower energy demand and improve comfort. These services will be available to anyone that participates in the SEU, kind of like current energy waste reduction offerings are available through our incumbent utility. However, we could offer a slew of additional opt-in services that individuals can use to improve comfort, reduce bills, and save energy. These additional offerings can be financed through on-bill finance. Through on-bill finance, the SEU is able to pay the upfront cost of improvements for you, such as energy efficiency or electrification upgrades. And then the residents pay back the costs through their utility bills. This allows the costs of the improvements to stay with the home as opposed to the resident and helps reduce the initial upfront costs needed to make these improvements. This makes these types of investments much more 
accessible to all residents, especially low-income individuals and renters, individuals historically omitted from most utility programs. The SEU will also provide support for beneficial electrification, ensuring we have safer, more comfortable, and cleaner homes and businesses, and eventually offer community solar programs so that individuals without viable solar access can still reap the benefits of clean energy. I know that was a lot to digest, but let me reiterate the core of an SEU. An SEU is a community-owned utility that focuses on generating local, clean, reliable energy fast. It's about leveraging existing technologies and practices such as solar and storage to reduce emissions quickly while improving reliability. It's about ensuring that all Ann Arborites have access to solutions to improve comfort, reduce bills, and reap the benefits of the clean energy economy. The SEU, as I mentioned before, is about generating locally owned, reliable, clean, affordable energy. Because we are generating it locally, we don't need a large and vulnerable distribution network. This also means we don't have to worry about buying a lot of poles and wires or about extreme weather events knocking the SEU supplied power out. Instead, we can focus on generating clean, reliable, local energy fast and reducing climate pollution rapidly. So to close out, I'd like to share a few examples of how the SEU would work. Uh, this isn't meant to be all inclusive, um, but some examples for how some of the concepts that we've discussed could work in practice. So let's start with the example of a homeowner or business owner who has good solar potential, but doesn't have the capital or ability to install solar on their roof on their own. In this case, the individual would subscribe or enroll in the SEU as a supplemental utility to DTE. The SEU would work with that homeowner to conduct a needs assessment, identifying potential energy waste reduction and electrification opportunities. Selected opportunities would be implemented and the homeowner would have the option of financing those through the SEU's on-bill finance program. The SEU would strive to create a financing package where the electric bill is the same or ideally less than what is currently paid. And once those are paid off, the resident reaps the full benefit of the improvements. Concurrent with the above, the SEU installs solar on their roof. The resident pays their energy bill as they always have, paying per kilowatt hour of usage generated from the on-site solar system. Any additional power they draw from DTE is paid directly to DTE. In this way, the resident has two bills, the SEU bill for the ener energy generated from the on-site solar system, and then to DTE for power drawn from the grid. In this example, um, a resident or business is interested in energy waste reduction and beneficial electrification offerings, but cannot install solar, perhaps because of beautiful trees that block solar access or 50,000 dormers on their roof. Um, in this case, the individual would receive an on-site assessment to identify energy waste reduction and beneficial electrification opportunities. The individual would choose which options to move forward with and would have the option of financing them through the SEU's on-bill financing mechanism. The individual could also register to, to join the micro or nano grid thereby sharing power with residents that have better solar potential on their roofs once a critical number of neighbors sign up for the SEU. 
This individual would receive two energy bills, one for the portion of improvements financed via on-bill finance through the SEU, and the other one for the energy that they pull from DTE. Third example is a resident who already owns their own solar on their home or business. In this case, the resident could still take advantage of all the energy waste reduction and beneficial electrification support offered through the SEU and leverage on-bill financing to pay for those improvements like everybody else. This resident could also enroll for an SEU-owned battery if they don't currently have one. The resident can also enroll in the SEU and sell their excess power to the SEU so that it can be distributed through the local micro and nano grids or shared with their neighbors. The rates for energy being sold to the SEU still need to be determined, but the intent is to get as close to net metering as possible. In this way, the resident is helping to provide power to the SEU and to their neighbors. Fourth example is for a multifamily rental. In this case, the SEU would work closely with landlords or property owners and tenants to customize solutions that meet individual needs. Rental units are eligible for all SEU offerings, energy waste reduction, solar and storage inst installation, beneficial electrification, and eventually being tied to the local microgrid. The city's work on green leases paired with on-bill financing tools offered through the SEU help ensure the cost of the improvements, again, stay with the building and allow the cost of improvements to be spread over a longer period of time, offering the opportunity for immediate health, safety, and comfort improvements at reasonable costs. Final example is of community solar. In some cases, individuals will not have access to on-site renewable energy generation. In these cases, off-site solar will be installed in common areas like parking lots or school rooftops or parks or other shared places. Individuals can subscribe to take a portion of this energy to help power their life and business. In this way, anyone in the community can participate in the SEU, even if they don't own their own home or don't have viable solar potential on site. Individuals that subscribe to the community solar offering pay, kilo, pay per kilowatt hour of usage directly to the SEU and pay DTE for any power that they use from that utility. These are just a few examples of how the proposed SEU would work. Um, and to find out more, we have a website at a2gov.org a2seu. If you are interested in seeing the city move forward with an SEU, please register your interest by taking, there's a short five question survey um, located at that website. And if you have any additional questions after this evening about the SEU, we are answering them <laughs> um, every single day uh, and you can send them into sustainability at a2gov.org. Thank you for letting me share a little bit about the proposed Ann Arbor SEU a clean, reliable, locally built and affordable way to power our community. And that's what I got. Thanks, Julie. I see a question from Chris Vandenbroek. Well, that's just a wonderful presentation and I just love it. Um, the whole concept I love, but of course there's always some questions, right? So the SEU would help finance the installation of solar panels and so on, where does that money come from? Is this involving a new tax or how do we, it sounds like this is gonna be expensive. 
um, where, where, where does it come from and how close are you to realizing this financial structure? Thank great, you. great question, Commissioner. Um, so obviously this is gonna require upfront cost. Any, any utility infrastructure would require upfront cost. Eventually the SEU pays for itself, just like any utility. Rate payers pay rates and that funds the operations of the utility, but we need upfront costs to start. Um, so where that would come from, we're actively pursuing the possibility of big um, DOE funding um, because it fits very well into some of the very large infrastructure funding that's coming out of the Biden administration. Um, but it's probably going to be stacked funding, right? We're going to look at maybe we are bonding. Um, we are going to look at all, you know, any amount of grant funding that we can get at state or federal levels. We have the climate millage coming up in November, which could help fund some of the upfront costs of the infrastructure. Um, and philanthropic funds. So you name it, um, we're going to, and the, one of the nice things about the SEU is that if we have a small amount of funding, we can start small and do a few neighborhoods, right? And if we have a large amount of funding to start up, then we can go big and fast. So great question. Thank you. Um, Shannon? I've got two questions. One is that, um, we put solar on our house and we're very disappointed to see that um, we only get 65 cents on the dollar when we, um, our excess goes back to DTE. And if we had done it uh, a year before, it would have been 100%. <laughs> so we're like, wow, we missed that boat. So I know you haven't set the rate, but do you anticipate that it would be higher than what it is for DTE, which just seems kind of crazy to me. So I'm just wondering if you- That's a great question. Sense. Yeah, great question. Commissioner, I am in the exact same boat as you. I missed out on true net metering. So DTE used to reimburse solar in a structure called net metering. And what that meant was that when you have excess generation on your roof that, that you're not using at that moment, it has to go somewhere. And where it goes is out into the grid. And DTE used to pay you full retail price for that because it was just flowing over to your neighbor who used it and they were charging them full retail for it. So it was a one-to-one, -one. but they successfully lobbied and changed that. And now are paying something like half of retail rate for what you generate. And then your neighbor pays them the full rate. <laughs> um, and I understand having to pay something for use of the grid. I think that makes sense, but it, it was a pretty dramatic drop in um in the reimbursement for your what you've um invested in on your roof so yes the idea and we're we have to work on rates and part of working on what our rates would be and rate design would would be how many people are interested in joining because obviously there are um uh you know, the, the larger scale is going to push rates down, right? So um, the office is working on that, but the hope is that it's closer to net metering, that it's it's certainly what DTE would pay, but hopefully decidedly better than what DTE pays. And we just have to kind of look at it and see. Um, happily, you know, on the one hand, we have to invest in infrastructure. On the other hand, we don't have to... Um, uh, make investors money <laughs> because we would not be an investor owned utility 
we would be a government, a municipal utility? Okay. Great question. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, the other thing is that um, I'm sure that other commissioners have heard about this whole idea of municipalization too with energy. And um, I'm just wondering if from your perspective, you could give us a kind of pithy list of pros and cons between those two different approaches. Yeah, fantastic question. So um, what Shannon's talking about is that, so the Office of Sustainability has proposed this um, sustainable energy utility, which is a parallel utility to DTEs as a way to meet our um, very aggressive and fast carbon neutrality goals in the city. Um, and at the same time that we were kind of um, coming up with this and, and investigating these possibilities, there was um, a group in the public that was very committed and interested in full municipalization, a takeover of DTE's infrastructure. So those are the two, it can get kind of confusing because we're talking about two utilities uh, one, which would be a full takeover of DTE's current infrastructure that we would just then own. And one is this parallel or supplemental utility that we're proposing. So there are definite pros and cons to both. Um, I would say that one of the biggest pros to full municipalization is that, um, that you know, you own it and you don't have to have um, it for some people not having DTE. Uh, provide energy anymore and we'd be able to make all of the decisions about all of our energy um, is definitely a positive. And the SEU means that we are still, we have the SEU as our primary eventually utility and DTE continues to provide supplemental power. Um, so that's a pro of full municipalization. We know that municipal utilities, full municipal utilities that currently exist do better than investor-owned utilities. We know that. They tend to be more affordable. They tend to have less downtime. When grid, grids go out, they come up more quickly um, because they're owned by the public and they don't have investors. That, that, that's not their primary goal is to, to it, their primary goal is to provide electricity. Um, there are downsides to trying to fully municipalize, which involve, um, according to the experts that we've talked to, a very lengthy process of acquisition that likely involves up to 10 years battling it out in courts um, in regards to, essentially we have this legal right according to our constitution to do this, but we also have to pay for it. And what we think it's worth and what DTE thinks it's worth are probably pretty far apart. In addition, we're not just buying their infrastructure, we're buying their monopoly, whatever that is worth. We're buying their stranded assets. We're buying, um, we're, you know, we're buying a lot. And if we're successful, which we're not always, some, some, there's nobody that's done this in the last hundred years in Michigan. There are states like in Florida, there was a community that did this successfully. And we've all heard about Boulder who did it, who has, was not successful in municipalizing after 10 years of trying to, trying to do it, battle it out. So even if we were successful, then we've missed our goals because it's after 2030, most likely. And we haven't even started to decarbonize. Now we just own what we have, which is exactly the infrastructure that we see. And now we have to modernize it. 
We have to um, update it. We have to do load management. We have to figure out how to decarbonize and shut down coal plants. We have to do all the things that we're now just starting to do. And because the Office of Sustainability has been tasked with carbon neutrality by 2030 by our city council, that was their, you know, they declared a climate emergency. This is what they told us to do. We don't think full that going that route is going to get us there. Um, because it's too slow and it's very expensive. Um, so I think there's other pros and cons, but, uh, oh, and I guess the other pro of the SEU in this respect is its resilience. It's a redundancy, right? Um, so now when the grid goes down, the grid goes down, there's nothing you can do about it. And if we own the grid, the grid goes down, the grid goes down. <laughs> we still have to, it's the same thing. Whereas the SEU, I think of it really as sort of like the grid of the future where, you have little microgrids and you don't have these big, huge, long transmission um, poles and wires so that if the big grid goes down, your microgrid can continue to support you because there are going to be battery storage um, associated with all of the solar that we, that we install. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Um, Commissioner Collivort? Am I saying uh, that right? Uh, just the question builds right off of just who we were talking about with resiliency. So wonder if you could speak to that a little bit more, particularly between the SEU and the munis municipalization. As uh -huh. I'm looking at the, the website with the graphics here, it looks like it's a redundant system. I think I hear you describing that as in a positive way, but would the municipal system also carry that same redundancy? And has anybody looked at kind of the efficiency of that? approach. You mean, let me make sure I understand your question. Are you saying, are you asking if we fully municipalize, would that redundancy still exist? Well, if we yeah. fully municipalize, then from, I believe that our efforts and our uh, bandwidth would be on that, on getting the infrastructure that currently exists. Um, and so then we'd have what we have, but we'd own it. So um, I think there is theoretically a way that we can be doing the SEU now and, you know, starting the SEU and then a conversation about full municipalization can continue if the feasibility study that's been commissioned um, finds that that's a good way to go. I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive. There are bandwidth questions mm -hmm. <laughs> and money questions, but um, is that... Is that kind of what you were getting at? Yeah, so I guess so back to the SEU, is it, is, is it a dual system or is the SEU utilizing the DTE infrastructure? It's not Excellent clear from the, question. from the graphic. Yeah, thank you so much for trying for clarifying that. The SEU will have nothing to do with DTE's infrastructure because okay. there's no so way that DTE would allow us to. So DTE is not gonna be thrilled most likely with um, us providing our own power because we're taking business away from DTE, right? But DTE has an exclusive franchise, so they must supply power and continue to supply power to Ann Arbor. So essentially, if you and I were neighbors and Edie <laughs> were neighbors and we eat, we were all enrolled in the SEU and we had solar on the parts of our three respective sunny roofs that could host it and we had battery storage and we microgridded our three homes, that would all be occurring underneath DTE's 
grid. It wouldn't mm -hmm. ever flow back into DTE's grid because as soon as we produce power and it flows into DTE's grid, then we're interconnected and we're using the grid. And then we are um, on like the current system. I have solar, my excess solar flows back into DTE's grid and goes to my neighbor, but um, I have no control of it after that. And I'm paying, or, and DTE is paying me low rates for it. Mm -hmm. I don't have a battery right now. So that means that if my, if the grid goes out, my solar gets shut down too. I don't have any backup resilience, but with a battery you do. So mm -hmm. our little microgrid, if the DTE's grid goes down in a storm, we would continue to be able to use our solar and our battery storage to keep the lights on. Thank you. And just that one other, sense. yes, yes. And very helpful and kind of leads into my last comment. And this may be out of scope, but maybe not. Um, thinking about the SEU and the uh, energy security that as I'm understanding it, it's gonna provide. Um, I think there's an opportunity in terms of the marketing and the communication around this as maybe it's a cheaper way to do it than all the generators that are popping up all over the place. On my street, there has been one generator. There will soon be five just on our yeah. block. And yeah. just the money people are pouring into those for, you know, it's basically the security. It's, it's you know, on my street, it's generally older folks that are worried about power being out and either yeah. health concerns related to that, et cetera. So I don't know that that is an angle that, uh, the city is exploring, but I think trying to get ahead of mass generalization uh, would be a good thing. You're absolutely right. It's one of the things that most excites me about the SEU because, um, because it builds in that resilience and that backup power automatically for, um, for the folks enrolled in it. And it's, um, it's a clean way to provide backup power as opposed to loud gas generators or propane generators or you know burning at, at more things cost, right like at, it, yeah. how much of those things cost five thousand dollars at least exactly right? and the and the beautiful thing i hope you caught it in the presentation but in order to have seu owned solar on your roof you're not paying upfront cost for that you're just paying for the energy it delivers commissioner marsan hi thanks for that presentation very interesting um, I, I think it's, it's interesting in, um, the notion of a, a parallel, um, generation and transmission system, even if it's this micro, micro transmission, but, um, I'm, I'm interested, I'm kind of curious, like how we're going to build support for this within the community, because when I hear of a parallel system and redundancy, I think, well, now you have two systems that need to be maintained. So inevitably the costs are gonna be more for that. Um, and as a homeowner, um, managing two different electrical bills or like power bills um, adds more complication in my life. Um, and, then, and then sort of related to that is that if DTE is still in the area and they're still running a, a um, utility in, in Ann Arbor, um, but if there, if we start, you, you know, homeowners start using less electricity from DTE, but they still have the same infrastructure that they need to maintain, aren't they just going to turn around and raise, raise their rates because they still have to pay, you know, for the infrastructure that they have um, with less consumption. And so how are we going to address that? 
Such good questions. Really, really good questions. Um, I'm going to take the last one first, then you may have to remind me of the first ones. <laughs> but uh, oh, yeah, the first ones. Okay, I'll remember the redundancy part of it. It's another utility for sure. And it's another bill because DTE, if, if we were if we were able to work with and cooperate with DTE, we could, you know, combine a bill, we could do this with them, but um, there, there hasn't been appetite for that. So um, it is two bills and that is a downside. Um, we already have multiple utilities. We're used to getting our water bill and our, you know, stormwater and our electricity and our gas. And so it's, it's another one. So the idea, like you said, is that you'd be using much less of DTE's energy and, and more of the SEU. And our hope as we design our rates is that bills are either even or come down, not that they're going to go up. That's, that's part of, you know, that's part of what we're looking at in, in terms of costs. Um, as far as the bigger picture question about DTE, so DTE is already raising rates over and over and over again, based on whatever it is that they have decided that, <laughs> That they need to continue to raise rates. There's a, um, it's an interesting uh, situation with DTE and consumers energy. They have um, a, a legal, I'm not a lawyer and I don't fully understand the legal structure of what they have, but they have a guarantee to their, um, their investors, the investor that own the utility to um, give back a certain rate of return. So they are constantly coming to the MPSC, which is the Michigan Public Service Commission, to request increased rates so that their investors can get more and more increased, or that same level of, of return that they're guaranteed. Um, this is an awkward situation. Uh, the MPSC is the regulatory agency for the big investor-owned utilities, but they have been limited in their ability, I guess, to curtail those um, costs going up and up and up. So I guess my answer to that would be they're already going up and up and up. And also Ann Arbor is only a relatively small portion of DTE's large territory. So um, the MPSC would have to agree to any rate increases and they're not going to just, you know, give them rate increased um, rates because, in other words, DTE can't just decide Ann Arbor's um, using less energy. We need to increase rates without the MPSC doing a full, you know, study and investigation of that. If this process makes DTE um, want to work harder to provide clean energy faster, then that would be a good thing. <laughs> if DTE cleaned up their whole grid and got us to, you know, full renewable energy by 2030, then that would be good. <laughs> and, but they're not. And we simply have limited number of choices on how to make it happen for Ann Arbor. So the eventual, the eventuality of what will happen, it's a good question. Will DTE, will other communities follow, which are hope? Um, uh, will DTE get smaller? Will DTE have to change the way that they are viewing procurement of energy and become more of a grid management system than a burning of things? <laughs> um, you know, those are, those are good questions. And I don't know, I don't know if I answered all of your 
thoughts? Did yeah. I miss something? Will, will homeowners have a choice uh, whether or not they need they need to consume energy from the SEU? Absolutely. It's 100% opt-in. It'll be opt-in. Okay. Yep. It's opt-in. You do not have to. You can stick with DTE if you're happy there or you want to just watch and wait and see how other people do. <laughs> I think mostly it's from a cost perspective, right? Like if, if you know, you feel like it's going to be more costly. So it both. should be less costly. Um, our hope is same or less. That is the way the rates are being designed. But interestingly, the survey that we have on the website right now asks three questions. Would you be interested in joining the SEU as described if it provided cheaper energy? Yes or no. Would you be interested if the energy was the same cost as what you're currently paying? And then would you be interested if the energy was up to 10% more? Because we want to know that. And interestingly, um, the majority of people are checking all of those that they would be interested in. More people are checking the first two. Also interesting is we had people and, and the, the results are not all done. There's like over a thousand people who have responded so far. We're hoping for several thousand, but um, there's another um, area of the survey that is asking people to rank what is most important about their energy system. Cost is in there, reliability, resilience, 100% clean, locally generated, all of these different thing, uh, principles. And the number one so far in the thousand, I can't see what percentage is because I can't see the back end of it yet, but is 100% clean and renewable. Number two right now is reliable. Number three is resilient. Number four is cost. And then it kind of goes from there. So our community is telling us what's important to them as well. But it is very important from an equity and justice standpoint that we keep the costs low because we cannot with the clean energy transition that we are looking at having it being with whether we like it or not we cannot burden those who are most energy burdened already um, and that's why we like this proposal because it gives us control over that Rita, Thank I see you. you talking, but you are. Right. On mute. I'm just going to. Yeah, I did mute myself. Sorry. I, I think we should move forward to the next questions. Thanks. Yes. Um, Commissioner Vandenbroek. Just a, a real quickie. I, I know you're scrambling to construct a organizational structure and get financing and all that. If you look in your crystal ball, <laughs> I'm sure if you could spit out a, a date when you might be able to roll out a pilot program and get this whole thing on the road. Holy cow, you're putting me on the spot. So some of this is up to council. <laughs> I'm looking at the two council members here. But essentially, what we've been tasked with right now in the Office of Sustainability is to do what we're doing, this public outreach, this meeting, the survey that's online, we sent out postcards, we're trying to garner community interest and see if there is appetite for this. And at the same time, um, we've, we're issuing an RFP to look at both full municipalization as well as sort of what we call an options analysis. So we're getting a third party to take a look at what we're, what we're proposing. Um, so those things have to be done. Then at some point it comes back to council and council, uh, 
uh, once we are done with our sort of rate analysis and our public engagement process, which we're doing right now, council will decide what to do with that. They could pass an ordinance to have us go ahead and get started with it. And like I said before, we can start small or we can start big depending on our funding. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball. I would love to see something being built in the first half of 2023, but that's just me. Please don't write that down. <laughs> I just wrote it down. <laughs> well, just write it down. Thank you. Sure. And uh, Commissioner Graham. Oops, you went away. Or, oh, there you are, but you're on mute. Sorry. Um, so microgrid, I, I'm interested in the technology a little bit here to understand it. Um, I don't have a house that's oriented good, oriented well for solar panels, and I certainly have trees. Mm -hmm. um, and I certainly understand zoning permit prohibits me from putting panels on the ground. Um, does this mean that if I wanted to really genuinely participate in this, I would need to orchestrate my neighbors to get them to install solar panels where the sun orientation is good and there aren't trees, and then we connect each other with wires? Exactly. And, it's and, Sorry. And that's what you're calling a microgrid? So I'm... And will we be able to use Edison's poles or do we have to install completely new infrastructure? How, how does this technically work in my little neighborhood? Yep. So there's two ways that you could participate. One is if you have a neighbor or neighbors with big sunny roofs, then and we can start or let's say you live next to a school or, or nearby uh, an area that we could put a large, large, larger array, then you can connect directly to that array. And that's the microgrid with battery, shared battery storage. And the wires that would connect you and your neighbor and the battery depends very much on the location of, of the individual site. But we own the right of ways. We could be burying very short lines that connect two houses that are neighbors. You know, you don't need a big pole and wire outside if you're close to your neighbor and you're sharing energy. You can bury it pretty easily. Um, and and where the batteries would go initially in the initial stages, we need to get solar and batteries out there so that we start building some density before or we can start microgridding. So that's the initial stages. But eventually we also can see shared battery storage in larger battery closets, almost like utility, you know, you have utility boxes in places. Well, these could be shared batteries as well. And we own the right of ways because we are the city. So we can put some of the infrastructure there. Um, and yeah. And then the other way is if you don't have neighbors or the, your entire neighborhood is deeply shaded and there simply isn't, then you can subscribe to true community solar. Because right now in Michigan, we are not allowed to have true community owned solar um, because that's the way it is in Michigan. You have to participate, do it with your utility. So in other words, we could take a... Um, 
a big school or we could take a big carport or a park or some unused land and build a community, you know, I don't know, several megawatts of solar energy. And then you could subscribe to get your um, your uh, electricity from that, you know, helped it sort of help fund that. And then that's that's sort of what community solar is. It wouldn't be interwired. That would be an account. Exactly. Exactly. You'd be cleaning something, but not necessarily electrons that float into your house in that case. So the capital expense, you say the SEU would install the equipment for my little neighborhood. Is the capital expense to do that included in the bill that would come to me? The bill that would come to you would be for the energy. And then eventually it would pay off the capital expense that the city incurred. Oh, yes, it is. It has to be. That's yeah. You're paying for the whole thing. You're paying for the infrastructure and also the operational costs, the staff, just like you pay your current water utilities. Okay. You're paying now for all the infrastructure for your water utilities. You're paying for the whole treatment plant and all the staff and all. But the depreciation is 25 years and it goes with the property, not the owner. Right. It goes right. Okay. Yep. Very interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Commissioner Juno. Yeah, um, thank you. I just wanted to, you know, someone asked uh, the comparison between the two and, and from um, being a part of a lot of these meetings on the Energy Commission, I guess I just wanted to highlight, I think from my perspective, some of the things that really stood out is, again, that, that option for the microgrids and the resilience that's there as compared with the municipal utility, um, and really that being so important to future energy systems and yet not something that we could easily achieve um, through the traditional muni route. Um, I think the energy efficiency piece as well, which we didn't discuss in a lot of detail today, but the SEU plan, it's also quite interesting in that it provides a lot of options for uh, reducing energy waste and building electrification and a lot of other aspects that are also outside the scope of a traditional municipalization effort. Um, so I guess I just wanted to highlight those two aspects as well. Thank you so much for highlighting those. We don't talk a lot about that, but they're just as important, very important. So what this, to flesh it out a little bit for you, um, let's say uh, council member Dish has a drafty old West Side home. I have no idea where you live, but let's just pretend. And uh, this drafty old West Side home would really take $10,000 to get good insulation and air sealing in there. And to, in order to reduce how much energy she's actually using. And let's say that council member dish does not have an extra $10,000 laying around that is earmarked for this purpose. Um, so what on-bill financing can do is help by spreading that payment out over a very long period of time because we're not a bank and we don't need a four-year term. We can have a 20-year term. We can just set the terms, right? And pay it off over a very long period of time so that council member dishes energy savings that she's now paying less for her energy because her house is well sealed and the heat isn't just floating around outside now. It's staying in her house so that her bill savings can possibly hopefully be close to the payment that she's making over time for the insulation that she did. And at the same time, her house is much more comfortable. Um, so we can do this 
through on-bill financing. And then if council member Dish does all this work and then two years later get, decides to take a job in Hawaii and when she sells her house, the, the payments stay with the meter. So the next person who buys the house enjoys the updates that council member Dish made and the, and the more comfortable and energy efficient home. And they continue to pay off the bill pay just like, uh, just like council member Dish was. I should have picked someone with a shorter name than council member Dish. <laughs> should have picked Joe. So um, the on-bill financing is really exciting and, and we can incentivize electrification. And DTE does not. In fact, the way that the current investor-owned utilities are, they are not allowed, and I'm not entirely clear on who's disallowing it, but they are not allowed to incentivize fuel switching, which means going from gas to electricity. They don't. So, for example, DTE gives rebates for, let's say, if you replace your gas furnace, that's 85% efficient with a really new, nice, fancy 98% gas furnace, you'll get rebates from DTE, which is great. But if you get a 400% efficient, it's complicated, but <laughs> electric uh, heat pumps are over 100% efficient, they won't give you any rebate for that because it's fuel switching from gas to electricity. This is crazy making for those of us who are trying to <laughs> electrify our buildings because we can't keep burning things because uh, the more that we burn things for our energy, the, the climate is, well, we all know. So we can incentivize fuel switching if we are an SEU because we own it and we can do whatever we want, which I like. I hope that that flushed that out a little bit. Thank you for that opportunity, Commissioner Juno. Um, Council Member Griswold. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the enthusiasm. Um, I do have a few questions about technology, and I mentioned that when we were at the University of Michigan um, and the rapid changes in technology. And I'm old enough to remember when the smallest computer was the size of a refrigerator, and I don't mean a dorm refrigerator. So things keep changing. And so if you have a house with um, that's totally electrified and two electric vehicles, are you going to have any excess electricity to share? And I'm thinking the, the least expensive uh, model would be to use all of your electricity or store it in your car batteries for later. I realize we have to address equity issues through grants and, and other means if we do that. Uh, but I, I hope that whatever plan we roll out, that we get some engineering professors, automotive engineering professors, to collaborate and look at least five years out, because we're going to roll this out over time. And so how do we uh, make sure that whatever we're doing is, out, is not um, outdated before we even get it implemented? You know, so. Uh, really good question. Oh, go ahead. Keep going. Uh, we know that severe weather events are going to become more frequent. Frequent. So also, how do we address solar panels on roofs and their stability? And I, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe mm -hmm. they're, they're very, very stable. Um, 
So anyway, I'm, I'm just looking forward to this. And the last thing I'll say is I built a, a passive solar house in 1983 and my furnace didn't run today and it was 75 degrees, but I didn't open the windows because I wanted to save that heat for tonight. So I, I hope we, we look at all the different approaches so, and, and look at it over time and look at technology. So thank you. Those are great comments, um, council member, really good comments. So one of the nice things about this is that it, it's a little bit more flexible, right? DTE, look at DTE and how inflexible oh, it is. Yeah. We have this massive infrastructure changing that, updating it to something that looks towards the future is really, really hard. Whereas as we deploy these um, solar and storage and microgrid technologies, as the technology improves, we just employ improved technology. Um, it, it allows for more flexibility, I think, as things grow. Mm -hmm. um, there are microgrids all over the place now. I mean, they exist. They're successfully operating in industrial settings, in hospital mm -hmm. settings, in residential settings. This isn't a new concept to microgrids. Um, On-bill financing exists, right? Weatherization and electrification exists. What doesn't exist in the way that we're suggesting it is marrying all these things together into a utility that is municipal. So it's not, we're not totally reinventing the wheel and just coming up with this. These, the, there are excellent examples of all of the pieces of this working in Holland, Michigan, for example, does a beautiful on-build financing program. And we meet with these other cities um, to talk about what they like about what they're doing, what they don't like about what they're doing, what they wish they had done differently so that we're trying to learn. But you are right. We are going to have to hire engineers. <laughs> there is no doubt about that. And I am not an engineer. And as to terms of your question about vulnerability with severe weather events, you're right. We know they're increasing. We feel it already. They're only going to get worse, which is kind of terrifying. Um, solar panels are probably some of the most resilient um, technology. Uh, they, they're they really, really stable. If a tree falls on your house, your solar panel will be damaged. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. But wind can't lift them. Hail doesn't hurt them. You know, I suppose if your house is crushed, your solar panels are crushed. But other than that, it, it's a pretty it's a pretty resilient structure. And if there was damage or if a battery went out or an inverter went out, because these things will happen, you know, technology fails, the number of folks that it affects is very small. And mm -hmm. then the SEU, which is a full service utility and will be deployed to go fix anything that is problematic, is now dealing with a very small number of people who have an outage as opposed to an entire city like we see now. So great questions. I love this. This is fun. I could stay here all night. <laughs> I won't. Sorry. Uh, um, uh, yes. Um, I think I would like to be the last right now because we do have another agenda item that I'd like us to spend some time on. Um, but I really appreciate this. Um, I do want to bring up something that is uh, uh, it has to do with the, the bigger picture of DTE and the fact that they are currently using many fossil fuels and have a plan to continue until 2050. So how does that fit in with the SCU and the A20 goals of having 100% fossil fuel free, or at least net zero um, by 2030? How does that work? 
Thank you for asking that question. It's a really good one. And I, I, there's so much to talk about. And I just, you know, it's hard to know sort of which avenues to take. It's an excellent question. So um, right now, if our SEU was as big as it could possibly be, in other words, we're using all the sunny space and even moderately sunny space on all the roofs in Ann Arbor. This doesn't include things like carports and ground mounts because we can't really um, model that. So there's actually a little bit more available. But if we used all the roof space, we could generate almost all of our current energy use, like 400 versus 440, I think, something like that. Um, so we're a little bit short. But we also know that we are going to be electrifying. So our usage is going to go up. Of course, we're also working on energy efficiency, which brings us back down. But with electrification, especially of vehicles too, we anticipate it's going to go up quite a bit. So the SEU alone wouldn't be enough to create all the clean energy. So there's going to have to be offsite generation as well. And so what that means is that we would be helping to build um, clean energy, wind maybe, maybe solar, to supply it to, so the electrons wouldn't be coming to Ann Arbor homes, right? The electrons would be going somewhere else, but it would be so offsetting. It's your cost it, well, it renewable would be, energy credits, something like ish, that. But it would be new build. It would be mm -hmm. additional. In other words, we're not just trading on the market. <laughs> we're building new because that's part of the energy principles that the city council has um, adopted, which means mm -hmm. speed is in there. You know, how fast can we do this? And any new um, new renewables on the grid must be additional, not just kind of um, things that we're already going to be built that we're subscribing to, that kind of thing. And then that helps us meet our 2030 goal. And then DTE has a 2050 goal apparently, and hopefully they'll get quicker about that and they will continue to clean up. So eventually our electrons will also be fully clean as DTE cleans up, but they're not fast enough. They're not going fast it's, enough. So we're going to have to do some offsite generation as well. It does seem to me that there is a great potential for the Muni and the SU to work hand in hand in this way, because the Muni could be a source to be set up to source the funds, the electrons from elsewhere. Um, that's that's what I believe. I'm not sure, um, but also I have another question about DTE, and that is the solar landfill. How yeah. does that fit in with the SEU? Yeah, who's, thank you. Great who's question. Who's the owner of that? So project? right now, DTE is the owner of that. The only way we could get it built was with DTE as the owner. So essentially, what happened for those of you who don't know is the city intervened in the IRP that DTE, um, DTE came with a, a bunch of um, proposals. We did not think that they were just and equitable or adequate. And so we formally intervened in their IRP and it went to mediation. And in that mediation, we got several things. The city was successful. We got a reduction in the cost of the migraine power program, which is DTE's renewable program, which was is it's still, in my opinion, costly, um, but it's less than it was 
and we got this landfill solar project. And the only way, you know, just like mediation of a divorce, I suppose, <laughs> that you're going to get, you're not going to get everything you want. And what we got was DTE will own it and, and Ann Arbor will be the anchor tenant. And what that means is that um, the infrastructure is owned by DTE. We will never pay it off like if we owned it. So that's the downside. The upside is we also don't have to maintain it. They do. And it's on a landfill, which is expensive and somewhat difficult land to build solar on. It's um, it's shifting and it's just, it's more technically difficult. So DTE owns it. They operate it. We are the anchor tenant, which means that if nobody subscribes to this community solar project, then Ann Arbor will, the, the city will offload all of it, but we anticipate people will subscribe to that. So that's another and, option, but it won't you, be owned by the, by the SU unless the SU purchased it at some point. Right. They wanted to sell it, but I don't know that that would happen. I don't know. That's not in the current plan. Could Ann Arbor ostensibly use all of that energy? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, it's only... Yeah. I forget how many megawatts and it is. Are, are we at um, at the mercy of DTE's billing for that? The, yeah, it, I think it's going to be a program, an offering like under the My Green Power program. Mm -hmm. It is going to be at a premium. And yeah. part of the reason it's going to be a premium, meaning cost more, just like their My Green Power now, is that we did go to out with competitive bids and we got a lot of bids and there was a lot of interest in helping to build that landfill solar but building on a landfill is not the cheapest way to build solar because it is more technically difficult and i can't explain all of why that is because i am not an engineer but um, landfills are one of the more expensive places to build solar on on the other hand, it's a landfill and it's otherwise doing absolutely nothing other than being a landfill. So it is a wasted space and a good place to use, but the rates is, is they couldn't come in lower than, um, than like a migraine power kind of thing. Okay. Um, I hope that everyone is, feels um, fairly well satisfied. I think there can be many, many, many more questions that we could go over, but I really feel like we should move on. And I appreciate this discussion. I feel like I've learned. Um, I Thank you learn all more. for your time and, and listening. Um, I really appreciate yeah. it. Um, but I think we should move on. Um, we um, brought to council. Thanks again, Julie. Uh, we brought to council tonight for just discussion. Um, the city code. So this is a something that's been a project for a long while, and um, I've been involved with it. And I asked for some assistance from. My colleagues uh, Chris Graham and Shannon Gibb-Brandel and a few others just to look this over. Um, the chapter 40 is the management of trees and other vegetation in the city. It's a, a city code that um, addresses mostly the property that is between your property line and the edge of the street. Um, and so um, it is something that um, I do think that what we've got in hand that has been largely um, authored by Chris uh, is, is a good model. And I want to know, first of all, has, have you all had a chance to look it over? Um, and can we discuss tonight, which I would very much like to do. Great.
let's do it. Um, I did put together just a list of some things that to me, I think are really important and I'll just say them out loud as opposed to showing on the screen. I think we wanna make sure that what we get out of this is something that supports our ecosystem services, reduces our municipal water use, um, minimizes stormwater runoff, reduces turf grass ultimately, or supports alternate vegetation in, the, in that particular property. Um, and supports pedestrian vehicle safety. Those are really important things. Um, it'll allow us to demonstrate care of vegetation that's different from traditional uh, mowed grass. Uh, and it should, when we get this done, um, minimize the enforcement conflict points between a property owner and um, our city enforcement staff and provide education to the city. So I'm, I, those are the things that I saw as really important. Um, do I'll ask you all, do you think that I should put this up on the screen for you to view? Do you wanna just, I see a nod. Okay, here we go. So Julie, help me please. Um, and I'll get ready to show my screen. Oops, that's recording in progress. Share screen. Oh my goodness. Uh, all right, here we go. Do you all see my screen? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I will have to ask for assistance with anybody who has a question. And but I do see that uh, Commissioner Griswold has her hand up. So let's go for it. Oh, okay. I just want to say that this is something that I have followed literally for two decades. And uh, I really appreciate all the work that has gone into this. When it, uh, before it goes to council, it's going to have to be reviewed by the administration, and especially the legal department. And my experience with the new city uh, attorney is that she is very thorough. And so I, I suspect that some of this is going to be in supporting documentation procedures, not in the actual ordinance. Uh, that doesn't make it any less important, but uh, I, I just wanted to explain that expectation because it's likely that the ordinance itself will be shorter and, and there will be uh, staff directions and procedures included. That's my comment. So, Kathy, let me just ask you, where does that documentation, uh, where is it, where is it stored and is it available to the public? It, it would have to be an attachment to the ordinance somehow or on the, um, like the department webpage, be it community standards or maybe it would actually be indexed from a couple of departments. Um, I don't know exactly when, when I was on the school board, we did a rewrite with a consultant of all of the policies and procedures for the school board. And we had specific policies and then we had procedures that referenced those policies. So I, I'm gonna have to study this more unless someone on the commission understands what that structure is but it's definitely needed. And previously chapter 40 actually had the paper copy of chapter 40 had a diagram of the site distance triangle. 
um, that was removed by the legal department more than a decade ago. Um, so I would see things like those diagrams, which are very, very helpful, being in some type of reference document that we would definitely want to have a link to from the actual ordinance. I don't know, Shannon, you're, you're shaking your head. Is there anything like this already with policy, with the planning documents? I'm trying to remember. That's what I was just trying to look up to see, because one of the things, first of all, I really appreciate the work on this because I feel like it's in very good shape. Um, and um, I'm excited to see this happen. Um, so thank you for all of your efforts on this. Um, I, uh, I don't think we have diagrams, but I could be wrong. I was, that, that's what I was trying to look up to see if it was easy for somebody to kind of type it in and get the diagrams, because that's what you need to know. If I live on a street that's 25 miles an hour, what is it? If I live in a street that's 35 miles an hour, what is it? And, um, and it's pretty straightforward for those, to, because it's all set up based on how, like miles per hour and things like that. So I think it would behoove us to have some simple diagrams that show something for your average homeowner to understand how tall it needs to be. Um, because we only go up so high in this city and, and, and very few residential uh, uh, driveways are on streets that go 45 miles an hour. There's just not a lot of them. Um, so uh, it seems to me that we should have that in, um, in a kind of an online format that is because there are lots of things in the city where you can get the kind of pithy overview sheet that is a PDF that is available on the city's website. And like, it's whether it's like, your, you know, your fence permit or guidelines or things like that. There's stuff there that is really straightforward that mm -hmm. I feel like could be like a user-friendly way of being able to determine what your, your, your cone of vision needs to be and what that, you know, have some sort of simple diagram that shows that. Because I think that's what, uh, it references that, which it needs to, um, but I think we need to make it easy for people to be able to do that. So I think that that should live somewhere. Um, I don't think it's in our orange book because that's really for uh, engineers, um, not so much for homeowners. And this would be more a kind of a homeowner thing. Right. To my knowledge, it's only in the orange book. And when I tried to look it up, the only way you could get access to the orange book was to pay $200 or go down to City Hall. Exactly. And so, and, and a lot of the Ashto stuff too, you have to pay for, you mm -hmm. know, so I think that it would be helpful just to have a, um, like a page or two PDF that would demonstrate it for people. That is something that is easy to get online. Okay, great. Um, is there any section of the um, draft here that anybody has any particular questions about? Ah, I see hands. John Yeah, a question I had, it's on page two, three, 12. Here we go. Um, as I read this just as a homeowner, mm -hmm. I'm a little confused as to how this would be applied. Um, you know, particularly the last part of that paragraph take any action which may injure or destroy a street tree injure i mean what what are we injury to the point that it would kill the tree 
what are we talking about? Because you can, you know, weed whack a tree and injure it. Mm -hmm. um, what's the what's the degree here? And that that may be inappropriate for this, but that's just something that, you know, Oops. I was confused about. Um, I think weed whacking is a pretty important thing, but I also think I'll, I'll just throw this out: um, weed whacking and perhaps um, the significant. Um, uh, what do you call them? Volcanoes, mulch volcanoes around trees and on streets that can seriously harm the, the mm -hmm. lower bark. Um, I mean, but, just but that, yeah, it could be more specific, perhaps. Is that? I mean, I think it would be injury to the point of killing it, but I'll mm -hmm. leave that to you know experts in terms of how that should be defined. And I mean, just another anecdote. You know, we've got two really nice trees in front of our house, but the neighbors hired somebody to trim them back because they were blocking sun to their house. Ooh. And, you know, it's a city tree. Is, is that allowed? That could have been injury. You know, I don't know. And the arborist said, no, we can, we're mm. able to cut up to 10% of the tree without checking with the city, which sounded really? like crazy to me, but. <laughs> wow. Um, Chris, what do you think about that? Maybe, maybe um, Shannon as well. Um, I saw some folks working in the front, a very small front yard on North Fourth, um, down the hill from Carytown, this week, they were digging up the whole small front yard and had soil piled up around a street tree up almost to the first branches, and mm -hmm. were operating a machine right next to it. It would surprise me if that tree didn't come out of that process uninjured, which probably would mean bark stripped off, soil disturbed in the root zone tree broken in part or in whole. Um, I would think injury would be obvious and serious um, in order to draw the attention of someone who would complain and therefore enforcement action. So this is something, the, the point of, of this is to allow people to um, lodge a complaint and have someone from the city take action. Um, so yeah. Is that something like um, that the reference kind of information that um, council member Griswold just mentioned could help with? I'm confused a bit about the Greenbrook. I, I found on the city's website a whole compendium of specifications for roads in the city, easily available. There's a section called Material and Design Standards. It talks about site distances. It talks about site triangles. Talks about plant substitution. Talks about trees in the public right away. Talks about reeds and grass in the public way. The language in there um, isn't in code per se, unless these specifications are code. I think they're what the city calls the Green Book. The language in there would need amending to some degree if we did these changes to chapter 40. There's also a section in the development code called landscaping. And some pieces of that would need to be improved in order to 
blend with this these changes in chapter 40, but I don't know of any separate procedures apart from an ordinance that are in existence in the city. Diagrams are included in the UDC and certainly could be included right straight into this code. And we've talked about doing that. Um, okay, maybe this is something to talk over with the, the uh, staff or you. Commissioner um, Marsa? Yeah, um, page three, uh, down in the section 314, number four. Yes. Uh, yeah, down here towards the bottom, cultivated herbaceous plants may be grown up to 36 inches in height, if not fully opaque above 24 inches. Um, and if they are not in a sight distance triangle safety area on the right of way or on an on adjacent private property. I guess I kind of coming at this also as a homeowner, I read that and was like, I don't know, opaque, a fully opaque plant, 20 up to 24 inches. I don't know. I was just like, what is this? <laughs> and what is, it, fully, what is the part about on adjacent pri private property? Fully opaque would mean you cannot see through it, period. So like a boxwood or uh, a U. Yep. You know what I'm saying? So something that's like a shrub that's fully foliated. Okay. Um, private property, of course, means if you come to an intersection and you have a U hedge right at the sidewalk at that intersection and the intersection is not controlled with a stop sign, you wouldn't be able to have good sight distance. So the private property violation would be there. I guess, okay, so the... Some people do that. The on adjacent property, private property is referring like... So if it's adjacent to a limited site, just if it's adjacent to an intersection. Let's say you're at an, at an intersection, the city's right of way and you have sidewalks, the city's right of way extends to about six inches inside your sidewalk. And then your private property begins. But on some intersections, if you put a arborvitae hedge right on your property line, right at the sidewalk, you would not be able to see around the corner. So you're saying that like, so this is trying to point out that that, that even if that boxwood or whatever is less than 24, if is it allowed if it's less than 24 inches? Yep. It just can't be more than 24 inches. Can't be, can't be more than 24 or less than eight feet. In other words, there has to be a window through which you can see. Okay. And it doesn't have to be 100% clear. Okay. Well, so you can see yeah. reasonably. So that, that section may be, I don't have any great suggestions for it at the moment, but like we just had to have this conversation for me to understand that section. So I, just, I would point it out as maybe needs to be worded a little bit better. Okay. Um, uh, and then on the next page, I, I noticed there was uh, a line about, sorry, um, ah, number nine there. The city shall endeavor as much as possible in number nine. Uh, 
And I felt like that was that's kind of vague. <laughs> the city shall endeavor as much as possible. Um, it's like either I, um, when writing requirements uh, or things like this, I feel like you have to either sell them, they, they have to do it or, or where, are, um, where are you? Under, number, number nine. nine. Well, uh, I guess I, to me, like that's like uh, the city's going to say, "Well, we endeavored, but sorry, we didn't tell you." <laughs> like you know, it's just like leaves them a pretty big out for not having to inform you of uh, work happening. We could say it's absolutely required, and it'd still be the way it happens. <laughs> uh, I then leave the line out. I guess I don't know. I, I just. Uh, we're just, I mean, the, the language is intended to be a bit gentle on the city, and, yeah. but if it set a, a cultural um, guideline, that'd be good. I think most of the time they say when they're coming to do sidewalks, they tell you there's going to be utility improvements in your neighborhood, and I, I don't think this is violated all the time in, in a terrible way here in Ann Arbor. I think most of the time they're informing people. Yeah, you know, and I wonder, like, I, I can see where in an emergency situation, that's where they don't have the adequate time to inform people what's going on. And, you know, maybe saying, like, if it's not an emergency, then you got to let people know. And, I mean, it's they're up, up to their discretion whether it's emergency or not, I suppose. But and I, I think they do generally let people know. It's just yeah. sometimes it's kind of irritating. And a lot of people don't pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just felt like um, so much. I, I mean, I, in general, I think this is um, very well written and very, um, very specific. And I think that's nice. It makes it really clear. Not, not a lot of wiggle room, but uh, the city shall endeavor just to me came across as um, too vague. So we should we can talk about that, can't we, Chris? Maybe there's another way to talk about it. Yep. Oh, yeah. Express that. Yeah. See what we can do. Okay. I circled it on my copy. Yeah. So there's a lot in here about private property, which you're not asking about. It's more here on private property about private property than in the existing ordinance or any place else in the city code, except perhaps landscape and screening in development projects. And the idea, I think, fundamentally behind Rita's effort here is to encourage and allow and and build on the idea that we want less grass and we want more um, at least water absorbing ornamental um, gardens on people's property um, going forward, if not native plantings. And, and the idea is to get both the safety thing to work on the right of way um, and to get the city to recognize these things more carefully. My experience has been the people who enforce against or in response to complaints know nothing about native plantings and about um, natural habitats, which is why we added this whole section in here is to educate and identify 
and get the city to keep a registered list of places where people are trying to do something other than mow grass. Yes, I wanna, I'd, I'd like to move on because Chris um, Vandenberg has his hand raised and we're, we're at 8.35. I wanna make sure that we get up through this and um, have a, a few more minutes. Yeah, just a real quick comment. I'm going back about five minutes about the word opaque. I, I was really happy to read that in this document because just, just for example, <clears throat> on First Street, uh, just east of, or just south of Liberty, there's a median in the middle of the street that separates the bicycle lane from the car traffic. And the city put some grasses in there. And the grasses are clearly higher than 36 inches. But they're not opaque. There's absolutely no trouble looking through those grasses yeah. to see a biker or somebody in a wheelchair or something. And I was struggling in the past to come up with some kind of verbiage because we have this mindset, well, it's, it can only be so high, you know? So I, I just wanted to, it's just a good example of how that word opaque can play a role. So that, that was my comment. Um, great. great. Kathy? Uh, the comment in here about garbage, is that already in another city ordinance? I don't think so, Kathy. I think this is where that part was in this ordinance. Oh, okay. And we just improved upon it a bit. I think that, didn't we get that from another city, I think? Well, the whole section reference. we got from another city, yep. Yeah. But I think we do have a, uh, oh gosh, let me look at the existing. I would just say that from my perspective, I would like this to be um, useful for the staff as well as the homeowners, property yes. owners, you know, that it, that it really works both ways um, for, and essentially helps communication. And I appreciate those kind of questions that call out those things, um, Mr. Narza, in particular things. Okay, and it'll be important for the legal department to take a look at this because I know that there was one property on the near west side where uh, a neighbor complained and the city went to court because they alleged it was an unplanned natural area. I think I have the the verbiage right, the, the city lost that case and it was on private property in the back of the home. So we, we need to make sure that anything we have in here, and I think all of this is very good, but we need to make sure that it's legally defendable. Mm. Mr. Gruber. I, I'm sorry, I don't have this document to look at on oh. my own. So I'm just looking oh. as you go through it. So I have a question about, yeah. as I look, so if you remind me, if the plants are, are opaque, or you can, if you can see through them, and they're woody plants, they can be above two feet, but less than eight feet. Did I hear that right? No. And, and what's, what's the herbaceous perennial rule then? It can, did I see that it couldn't be above three feet, whether or not it's opaque? 
Uh, generally, yes. Uh, you know, okay. if someone, again, it's fully opaque that causes the problem. Yeah. Regardless of the height, and there's generally a rule that that can't happen between 24 inches and eight feet. 12 feet over the roadway, eight feet over a sidewalk. Okay. So herbaceous perennials like goldenrod and Joe Pieweed, those that sometimes get bigger than 36 inches, are those not okay? They wouldn't be okay in any site triangle, including at driveway aprons, corners, bus stops, and median gardens, except I guess we have to get along with here in Parkway, but they do mowing at the intersections there. Um, um, and any pedestrian crosswalks. So uh, there has to be a site triangle where pedestrians are near the road and, and on curves. Um, on straight residential streets, straight sections of residential streets, um, there shouldn't be a lot of complaining going on as long as they're not weeds, which generally means invasive species. Okay, thank you. But um, this is kind of really specific, but Joe Pieweed would, would be one that, that personally I wouldn't recommend to put in that sidewalk buffer strips, Chris, just because I think that's very likely to be four to five feet tall. Yeah, there are a number of, a number of great prairie plants that probably are too tall for the sidewalk buffer strips, but not for my yards. Right, exactly. Okay. Um, is the idea that if you are going to have like a prairie on your property that you would have to register with the city to do that or is it optional the idea behind that um, stipulation was that the city would be informed as much as they can about what people are doing out there so that if there's a enforcement person that understands dumpsters and garbage and that sort of stuff, they can do that. If there's an enforcement person that understands natural features and natural areas and natural communities and natural plants, they can be sent to deal with that complaint. Um, and if the city knows ahead of time that they're working with someone who's trying to do something different than mow grass, there would be a a chance of a better discussion and outcome with the property owner. No, it wouldn't be required. One second. I think I think she may be getting at something different. Uh, that you can do anything you want in your front yard, in your backyard, in your side yard, as long as it's not blocking people's views from their cars for pedestrian or bike safety. So that's the thing. You can do whatever you want. But if you're in conflict with where you may be blocking people's views, that's when it's a problem. And so you can have a 12-foot tall Joe Pye plant in the front yard. You just can't have it in, if you live in a corner, you can't put it on the corner where you may be blocking a car from seeing a pedestrian come by. Right. So in terms that's of what Chris Graham is saying, is that you don't have to register with the city because you want to do a prairie in your front yard. If you want to plant the right of way, which is that strip between the sidewalk and the road, I think that's what he's getting at, is that if you are doing something in there that is 
tall, you know, that's where the problems are because that can block people's vision so easily. Does that clarify it a little bit? I guess I didn't understand that from the document that that, that section was with regards to the right of city right of way or the or the most strip or, or the sidewalk. What do they call that? Sidewalk buffer strip for calling <laughs> it. Yeah. Buffer strip. Buffer strip. That's it. Sorry, I thought that was in the um, section on you know what's going on on your own private property. There is that. Let's see. It applies there certainly. And it applies there only if you have a property that could potentially block. Uh, again, if you're on a corner, and you could potentially be blocking from seeing somebody approach the corner uh, I like your part your private property what is what is considered not part of the public right of way but you're on a exactly. corner and it could affect that's right got it that's right and so maybe that more clear in the way we're setting this up from the very beginning um in terms of the areas we're actually talking about okay um, yeah. because if you're asking that question then it probably wasn't clear enough yeah thank you thanks but I do think it's intended to have give staff a kind of a an opportunity to say, "Hey, I know this house is different, so they maybe uh, receive a complaint." But if they if if the city has accepted a person's registration, then it's really less likely that they'll get a citation unless their sidewalk buffer strip plants exceed the heights that we're talking about. Well, on uh, private property the case that Kathy was mentioning where someone was talking about an unmanaged native landscape mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. uh, someone who would register to have a prairie on their property is, is presenting likely to be presenting something very different than someone who lets weeds grow in the backyard, yeah. especially noxious weeds. So, uh, and there's a section in here that says you can't do that. So I, um, it's not just the right of way that's available for registering and getting on the city's radar. Um, it's it's people who are doing something different. Again, experience on a cul-de-sac in up off Nixon Road. A new neighbor moved in next to a very famous botanist wife who had a wildflower garden knee high. The neighbor absolutely didn't like it and started raising holy hell and called the city and got a complaint about the sidewalk buffer strip there and made my client mow it down. It had no weeds. It had uh, calf high wildflowers in bloom that were absolutely gorgeous. It was a real genuine mistake on the part of the um, city enforcement officer. But part of the intention here is to try to solve that problem and to stimulate the city to have someone in their employee who knows what they're doing. Um, we're at 846, uh, Kathy. Um, yes, I think we learned a lesson from No Mo May and we're going to have to make sure that there is a budget for education as we roll this out because it's, yeah. it's very important yeah. uh, and, and that we stress and have staff stress that this is really about safety 99% of the time. You know, it's, we don't want to uh, 
interfere in what someone's doing on their own private property if there isn't a safety issue or if it's not an invasive species. Um, one of the, the problems that I've come across many times is in areas where there isn't a sidewalk, people will grow tall vegetation in even arborvitae right out and over the curb. And that has become, become a, a practice in the, the area near King's School. And so one neighbor does it and then another neighbor, and now we probably have at least a dozen cases of that right up to uh, school crossings um, that are coming out of their uh, public walkways. So I'm not sure how we're gonna address that, but it's, <clears throat> I think it's a major safety issue. And the last thing I'll mention is the DDA has been planting trees uh, that are in violation of this ordinance. One example is Huron Street um, at the City Hall parking lot exit, where I don't know what kind of tree it is, but it, it branches out at about three feet and goes up. And so um, it blocks visibility. It's definitely opaque when it's, it's fully leafed out. Uh, and so, again, it's a matter of educating whoever is selecting the, the trees for the DDA. Because once they're planted, people don't want to make a change. Commissioner Just really quick, I guess two things that come to mind in some of the pieces on trees and invasive species in several of these instances. Um, I guess just wondering what type of capacity or if there's a realistic expectation. I noted that there was language that says no invasive plants will be allowed in the right of way um, or be allowed to reproduce. I mean, there's places where we have like vol. So I just wonder, is, you know, I mean, is there, is there going to be capacity for the city to take that on and, and the um, urban forest department? And, and I don't know if that, that could potentially be a little bit more specific. I just feel like going through um, looking for tree seedlings is kind of a, <laughs> a large ask. So just something on my mind. I think again, most of the provisions, most of the stipulations in this ordinance would be enforced by complaint. And my view of someone who was allowing invasive species in the right of way would be a whole sward of Canada thistle in full flower and fruit right up next to the road. First of all, it's very prickly if somebody touches it. Secondly, it's a very, uh, it's a windblown seed and terrible weed to eradicate. Um, someone might, if I live next door to someone who's doing that, I'd probably complain. Um, so I, I, some of these things are, are here are suggested to give the city grounds to respond reasonably to a complaint. They aren't here because the city has time or effort or interest in going out to, to find everybody who's got can of thistle on the street lawn. Just won't happen. I do, yeah, I do think that's a, a, an opportunity that we could use for the education component. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know that certainly NAP has done massive amounts of education with a lot of people over the years that um, I'm one of them that now know more invasive plants than I ever thought I would know. Um, and uh, so an alertness helps. Um, I think I'm going to have to ask us to stop if that's okay. And I want to apologize to um, Commissioner Gruber um, and anyone else who didn't get the attachments. I'm very sorry, and I will um, work to correct that. And I'll send you these documents to make sure that you have them to review. Um, I think it would be good to, um, if anybody has any additional comments, to please send them to um, to me and to Chris, or, uh, and we'll continue on this. Uh, it would be great if we can get this to a point where the Environmental Commission would say, yes, let's move it on to council. That, that's a goal that I would like us to reach. Um, so uh, is it okay with everyone if we stop here? Um, thank you. And um, I would like to see some my agenda. Um, Excuse me, Rita, is, is now the time to get staff input? Uh, possibly so that we get staff input before the next environmental commission meeting? Um, I, I don't know. And are you talking about um, which staff? Um, I would just send it to the city attorney and the city administrator and say we're, we would like this reviewed before the next environmental commission meeting so that we can recommend it to council. Um, Forgive me, Kathy, but I, I, I think we are not. We are charged. The Environmental Commission charges to make recommendations to the council. It's the council's charge to ask staff to do something. They don't um, work. They don't work for us. I, mean, I agree, but I especially the attorneys. I'm trying to uh, get this um, implemented before the end of the summer. So I'm just looking at it in terms of the number of months that it's it's gonna take before it's actually, you know, voted on by council. And then we're gonna to have to have a few weeks before it goes into effect. Well, I think the council is best equipped to press staff to respond, not us. Okay, uh, but there are council liaisons on the environmental commission. If um, you wanna do the asking, you can, you and Kathy. Oh, okay. I, I would just like to get it implemented so that the community can benefit from this. I get to this season. And we're we're gonna miss you. Let's get it done before you're out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Councilmember Dish. Are you yeah. muted? Oh, yeah, unmute. Uh, Kathy, yeah, I think I mean Councilmember uh, Griswold, I think it's a great idea for this to be referred now to staff because it will have to be referred it can't be brought to council before it's been referred to staff so <clears throat> unless the environmental commission wants to continue to discuss it we should refer it to staff i think and if we decide we need to bring it back to the ec that's another thing um i'm wondering if commissioner gibrandel agrees with me that it should probably uh go past planning because planning deals with natural features or yeah okay so um, I, I don't or, know no 
Not really, actually. Okay. It's not really a planning commission. Okay, um, so it's just then it's just legal and the city administrator who should always be in on everything. So will that go to them through you and um, council member Griswold? Are we going to, what's our process? I think that's the way. Um, I don't really think we can give them a deadline though. Um, but it would go through probably. the publisher too though, right? I mean, you would, you would send it to, to Tiffany too, to review. To, to whom? Sorry. Tiffany? Forrester. Oh, right, right, right. Yes, yeah. that's who should get it. Yeah. Yeah. So probably um, the best way is to um, meet with Mr. Dahoney and ask him how he would like us to proceed. Uh, okay. We think it needs to be reviewed by the, the city forester and the city attorneys. And so the we in that case is, is me and Kathy. Thanks. That's yeah. what I needed. Yep. Okay. All right. And yeah, we, we can talk about this offline. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. This was um, very helpful. We do not have any additional business tonight. Um, we, uh, we intended to have these two discussions. And so um, we are at 8.56. We can... Um, it's the pleasure of the group. Do we want to do a quick review of and report out of, of um, actions from various council members, other commissions, or we can close? Any preference? Mr. Marsden? Um, just from the Parks Commission, I just had a, a couple of real quick updates if you want to hear them. Wonderful. Let's have um, yeah, just uh, um, the city is going to be installing a, a monitoring well for the um, Gelman plume in Garden Homes Park. Um, I think that work is going to happen probably towards the middle to the end of the summer. Just wanted to bring everyone's attention. If you walk in that park like I do. Um, and then uh, let's see what else. This, um, I don't know if any of you are aware of the, the nature playscape that's being built in Leslie um, Leslie Park, the Leslie uh, Nature Center, but that is well underway and Leslie is holding a fundraiser. Uh, they call it Mayfly, it's an annual thing at the dinner. Um, so if anybody is interested in supporting Leslie and the great work that they do, um, I just bring that up um, and it's an opportunity to actually check out the new, the new nature playscape. And, um, Solar panels, we talked about um, the uh, energy uh, um, utility here, but um, solar panels are slated to be um, installed in number of, a number of parks and they're hoping, the city is hoping that that work will start uh, later this summer. Um, but uh, a number of facilities that already have, uh, parks that already have facilities, so they have buildings, um, the plan is to put panels on those buildings. So places like um, Burns Park, the uh, community center there, the canoe liveries, uh, the swimming pools, places like that. And then the final thing is the no, speaking of the no mo may that was alluded to earlier, um, I, you will still see mowing in the city parks. Um, 
for various reasons. And if anybody wants more details, I'm happy to talk. I'm just going to try to keep this really brief, but um, it's, it's very difficult to uh, schedule the mowing for all of the parks, particularly if you have a full month where the parks are not mowed. So um, the parks will continue to be mowed in the month of May this year. Thank you for that. Uh, I just want to report that the U of M workforce housing resolution that was unanimously approved by the Environmental Commission and the Energy Commission uh, was reviewed by a couple of members of the Economic Development Corporation. Uh, I was told that the Economic Development Corporation's mission does not include this type of housing, but we did want to get some of their expertise. Um, I shared it with uh, the group in an email today, and if there are any questions, I'm willing to answer them. I, I looked at it again after sharing it, and I do see that there are a couple of typos, so I'll continue to try to refine it. Uh, and also, um, it has the support of some student groups, as well as I mentioned it to um, one of the leaders of a state level union and they were interested in it as well. So the, I know I have a biased opinion, but most of the feedback has been very positive. And the Ann Arbor Observer also has an article about this resolution as well as the NACA resolution. Um, it, it somewhat intertwines the two resolutions um, which is not 100% accurate, but it's always good to get positive media coverage. So I'm, I'm thankful. Great, thanks. Commissioner Juno. Yeah, I just wanted to give a really quick update from the Energy Commission on a presentation on the Wheeler Center Solar Park, formerly or commonly referred to as the Landfill Solar Project that the city is undertaking. Um, Julie can probably speak more to any of this if folks have questions, but this is the 20 megawatt installation that will be going into a landfill site. Um, construction anticipated, I believe, 2023 and possibly generation by 2024. Um, some of the questions that came up, uh, is this truly additional? And um, again, as, as Julie mentioned earlier, because this is a difficult site, it's unlikely that it would have been built otherwise. Um, so this is, you know, additional clean energy. Um, and I guess that's most of it as, as she mentioned as well. Um, this is a subscription-based service so folks can voluntarily opt in. And if not enough people choose to opt in, the city can take on that power to offset municipal energy. Um, and it will be installed with pollinator habitat and fencing to, to block the views, so, um, and could be taken over in the case of a municipalization campaign, could be taken over as an asset. So that's the roundup there. Um, and there was a resolution that was passed in support of that and now it's onward. Great, thank you. Chris Graham, I know what you're gonna talk about. Yeah, so uh, as many of you know, um, the city contracted with the School of Nets Resources and Environment last year, not sure, last year, last spring, I believe, uh, to do 
tree um, remote sensing mapping and work for us. They presented their final report this morning and it's exhilarating. I, I'm, it's gonna be so exciting to show you what they did. Um, among other things, it's very clear there are a lot of native forest fragments around the city, some more important than others, of course, um, that aren't owned by the city. And therefore some of the work we've been doing about upping our mitigation requirements and development on behalf of those woodlands um, is true and valid and important to carry on with. Mm -hmm. um, the graphics that they will be providing to us in very complicated packages um, will be incorporated into the natural features pages of the city's website. Um, and we're working to make a lot of that available on handheld devices. Um, the uh, um, ability to understand trees across the city, not just street trees, uh, as is now the case, but the entire fabric of the city's forests, of its woodlands, um, is very helpful, including down to genus level in many instances, something like 55% of the city is identifiable in that way. Um, they've done a very good job with the graphics that show where turf grass exists. And of course, it's in the back of our mind to try to persuade people to have a whole lot less of that around that's not active recreation land. Um, we're very excited. Uh, it's going to take some time to get this gigantic set of files and materials into the city's systems and get it digested and up so you can see it and use it. But it will come. Very excited. Yeah, I was lucky enough to see it today. It was really great. So thanks. Commissioner um, Calvert. Yeah, I just emailed everybody the link to the Circular Economy Initiative website uh, that is now on the city website. So thanks to city staff, particularly Jenny Petoskey and the interns that have been working with us for moving that forward. Um, you'll see there's kind of placeholders there for some things that are coming. We're working on a couple of videos to highlight different aspects of the circular economy. Um, we're really focusing our work on three primary metrics for this. Uh, this is based on the lit review that has been going on for the past couple of months. But of course, decarbonization in terms of the direct link with A20, um, but also building this out uh, its most way of most value and relevance for municipalities, focusing on resiliency and equity too, as a part of defining the circular economy. Uh, we've got a half-day work session planned tomorrow with a group of C students that is working with us on this, plus our interns to kind of make sure we've got a work planned out for the summer. And we're making good progress with our partnership with the state through next cycle in terms of uh, building all of this towards uh, kind of uh, public uh, education and awareness campaign to make sure as many folks know about this and understand all the different dimensions as possible and take advantage of the wonderful um, circular economy network that we're identifying and highlighting through this work. So more to come. Excellent, thank you. 
Um, Shannon, you're next in my view. Are you, would you like to talk about planning? Um, the only thing I think the last month would be that we started looking again different sustainability initiatives that we have within our actual purview, um, which is frustratingly small in terms of the commission. Um, we, we ask a lot of questions to developers around which we really have uh, technically no legal right to, to, to press them on or to be able to enforce anything. So we're trying to identify areas where we actually can um, have uh, some sway. Um, one of the things that we're considering right now is um, people that have a lot of sustainability initiatives in their developments that maybe they would get reviewed first. Maybe they would jump to the front of the queue um, in the city process um, because time is money. And if you can get people um, some special, timing makes a big difference, it just does. And so if you see, you, you keep getting pushed back in the because you're not doing these things and maybe you'd have a little bit more motivation to be able to incorporate some of these initiatives into your planning. So yeah. that's just one of the things we're batting around. Um, I'm hoping that there's some other things too. I know we are hoping to revisit um, solar panels in the front yard again, because um, when that went through and got um, declined um, by uh, city council, it was a different council then. And I think there's a lot of shifts and changes since then. So um, there are definitely things out there that we're gonna be working on. Uh, people are very motivated to do that. Um, uh, I think especially around parking too, and really trying to figure out how we can um, make us a more um, transit-centered city um, and helping to kind of support people to, to rely on, on, um, on cars less. So those are the big things I think that we're working on right now. Great, sounds really great. Um, Mr. Kruber, would you like to talk a little bit about the pollinator group? Sure. I'm putting you out of the spot, but yeah, yeah you can. <laughs> you were there. You can fill in where I missed. Uh, so we are trying. We're working on educating and getting the word out about No Mow May, and we have put together uh, the the website on the city website is now available with information on the ordinance and um, how people can register or at least uh, let the city know that they're participating so we can track how many people participate and where they live. Um, we've included lots of resources there and we're going to host a sort of kickoff event next week. Uh, one of our pollinator group members is a, an entomologist so she's going to share some information for the to the community about why this is important. And then we'll do some Q and A, right, Rita? Mm -hmm. Answer questions yep. that folks yep. might have. Uh, and then the, we hope that maybe we'll have a, a sort of closing out gathering, maybe even in person if it works out at the end of May or in early June to sort of celebrate and, and think about how we can get this off and running and maybe be more prepared for education next year. Right. Yes, it, it was a really rush to get yeah. this going. And so, um, uh, Commissioner Marzen, I really appreciate your comment on the parks, um, because I, um, 
I feel bad because there are, you know, it's kind of this push pull that we hear in the community. But I do want to tell you something that um, that I found out from Missy um, Stelz yesterday. I, I asked her to give me the um, countdown registrations, and we had seventy seven people sign up as of yesterday, which I was really impressed about. Um, and I see a lot of um, I'll just pun buzz on uh, online about people talking about it um, in town at, at, on the next doors. Um, sites and Facebook, things are, people are talking about it. And I am really happy to see that. Um, and I'm hoping that this could be kind of the wedge where we start um, encouraging people to reduce their mowed turf grass. So that's really kind of what's behind it in, in my head, along with um, the support for the, the pollinators in general. So. And it's, um, yeah, it's been great working with Bridget and I'm looking forward to already next year. Um, all right, did I miss anybody that would like to report on anything? Um, well, right, so I have to do this formal thing, I'm so sorry. This is where uh, we go back to um, the public commentary. Our next scheduled meeting will be, uh-oh, May 24th. Um, I guess I, I would like to ask people if they would like to um, suggest any topics, please send them in uh, to me and to Steve Brown. Um, and, oh, staff. I, oh, yes. 4th or 26th? Yeah, that was my 26th. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Calendar reading, got to work on that. Um, Julie, I know you're not a regular person. Did Galen leave anything for, for you to tell us in the report? Not necessarily. I could tell you millions of things, but um, <laughs> I, I will not because it's late. But I will tell you just a couple of fun things that this past weekend, OSI um, held our, uh, our free tree giveaway. Um, Sean Reynolds has also been talking about the um, mapping project with a great enthusiasm. And we can't, I can't wait to see it. But we held another free tree giveaway at Leslie Science and Nature Center on Saturday and gave away over 600 trees. These were beautiful trees. They were three to four years old. They were in good health. It was really fun. I enjoyed fully um, participating in that. And then the OSI was also, it was a busy weekend at Leslie Science Center again on Sunday for Earth Day celebrations there, where there were just loads of people coming through having great conversations about all things um, A20. And that was really, um, really fun to get out into the community like that. Um, we have a resident newsletter that is um, coming out. We're just finalizing it now and it will be full of all sorts of information about what's going on. Um, we're doing another SEU meeting for the general public tomorrow and also on May 4th. Um, we are, are hosting, helping host a, um, forum on the latest IPCC report for folks that want to come and uh, have a discussion about that. There's, um, let me look quickly, there we're planning um, and a very large, hopefully, electrification expo at the farmer's market in July, on July 15th, which I am really excited about, with vendors there, with heat pumps and I'm hoping electric mowers and you know anything we can think of that's home electrification, as well as um, induction cooking, 
uh, demonstrations. We've got live music, food trucks. It's going to be just really fun for all of us who are sort of energy nerds. And that's how we have fun. Um, we're going to be at the Dexter Ann Arbor run and the taste of Ann Arbor. Um, and we have a two zero week coming up. And so we're very busy, knee deep in planning lots of community facing activities for a two zero week. So there's lots more, but the newsletter is coming out. And if you're not subscribed to it, um, please do so. Cause it's full of, full of good information. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to move on to our next public comment, our closing public comment. Now back to the statement. This is an opportunity for persons to speak for up to three minutes. Please call 1-888-788-0099 and enter the meeting ID, which is 989-2851-1637. The information is also displayed on the agenda and the video feed. Um, City staff will select callers that have raised their hand one by one using the last three digits of the phone number. In order to electronically raise your hand and indicate your desire to speak, please press star nine on your phone. You'll hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute any television or background sounds so that we may hear you clearly. Please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments. So Julie, do we have any callers? I do not see any callers. You are currently the meeting host. So um, I don't know if you can see any colors, but I see. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I do not. So with that, I will entertain a motion to adjourn. Shannon. And second, I guess I'll take it from Lisa. Um, all right. I want to just say thank you all. This was, um, for me, this was really an enjoyable meeting and um, it was good to see you. Maybe sometime we'll meet in person, who knows. Um, and uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing for the city. Thank you, Rita. Good night. Good job. Thank you. Bye.